Hello and welcome to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast with me, Phil Agnew. If you haven't listened before, the Nudge is all about providing you with valuable insights from the world of behaviour science and consumer psychology. I look at fascinating studies and research from the world's leading authors and pioneers in the industry and condense all of their great work into easy to listen to 20 minute podcasts. After listening, I hope you'll go away with small but important insights that you can apply at work or at home. This week, I had the absolute pleasure of talking to Sybil Yang. Sybil is assistant professor at San Francisco State University, and she's had a very interesting career analysing how consumers view and perceive all sorts of things, including menus, wine labels, and even dollar signs. Her work has been featured in Science and the Wall Street Journal, amongst other things, and we spent a lot of time chatting about the impact of removing or adding dollar signs to a menu, discovering the most effective ways to organise a menu, and even the best ways to design a wine label. I started our conversation by asking about a specific study Sybil set up when she analysed the effect of adding and the effect of removing a dollar sign from a menu. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. What we ended up finding, we tested three formats. Um, so dollar sign, um, digits in front of the decimal, and then two digits behind the decimal. Another version was... Um, Menu prices had digits in front of the decimal and then a decimal point, nothing behind it. So everything was in round dollars. And then the third format was you literally spell out in words, no Arabic numerals um, on the page. So you don't see numbers um, for prices, but you see written word, um, that, that pricing structure. What was, what was interesting for us was the format that people spent the most money with was without a dollar sign. And we were initially thinking that, hey, maybe it was the text written version because you don't see numbers on there. Maybe all the text would blend into one and you would not think of numbers and pricing because you generally see pricing written out as not, or written in, in numbers. Um, but it, a little further digging kind of revealed that 
people had an association of written out numbers, especially with, written, uh, with restaurant menus, as belonging to a higher end, more expensive place. And depending on who the customer is, uh, they may feel more on their guard about pricing uh, at a fancier restaurant, at a more high-end restaurant, especially if they're not used to that type of restaurant. Um, the format that had no dollar sign and nothing behind um, the decimal points, um, our, our theory as to why that was more, uh, that encouraged more spending than the version with the dollar sign was that if you see dollar signs all over the place, the idea of spending and the idea of money is constantly being hammered home to you in the back of your mind. You may just see a dollar sign in and think, oh, well, of course it's there because it's a price. But if you see it repeatedly, um, you're more likely to consciously think of price, uh, more consciously or unconsciously start thinking about price and be a little bit more cautious about it if that's your natural tendency to do so. The difference between the two formats was actually quite striking. So people with the test menus without the dollar sign tended to spend about 6% more on the check um, than those that had dollar signs on their, on their menus. So now, especially when you go to places where people are more price conscious, like fast food restaurants, um, quick service places, or even family restaurants, full service um, casual restaurants like TGI Fridays or so, those types of places, no dollar signs. I think this is a really cool piece of research. Sybil tested several different pricing formats and found pretty conclusively that removing the dollar sign completely actually increased sales by up to 6%. She even states that many fast food firms have taken her research and applied it, surely showing that it must have some effect. Now, not everybody listening will work in a fast food store, but I don't think that means you should disregard this work. Richard Shotton, in his book The Choice Factory, notes that this isn't just successful at cheap diners. Up marketplace like Byron and Café Rouge have seen success with this tactic in the UK. What's interesting, though, is that this insight is hardly used. Next time you're roaming around the high street or on the internet, take a look at the amount of dollar signs or pound signs used. They're everywhere. If you have some control over how you display your price, it's stupid not even just to try something out like this. Whether you remove the dollar or pound sign for a week and compare the difference, or just remove it in a single store or region and look for an impact. A 6% increase in sales can cost a firm millions in equivalent advertising fees, but Sybil discovered a way to do it essentially for free. But removing the dollar sign won't work in every scenario. In fact, Sybil suggests that there are times when you should emphasize the dollar sign instead. Oddly enough, um, if you look around at retail establishments where there are instances where they do want you to think about the price because the price is so awesome or it's such a good value, they will emphasize the dollar sign. But it won't be all over the place, right? So Mickey D's will have their dollar menu. Um, Target has their dollar spot, and it's all to emphasize that it's so cheaply priced, oddly enough. So they want to bring attention to the dollar value, the monetary value um, at hand. And so kind of two sides of the same coin, you can either use like uh, monetary symbols to bring it to, to people's forefront, or you can get rid of the monetary symbols and kind of 
incognito let people know what the price is without activating, hey, you're spending money. So if you've got a really good deal and you want to show how cheap it is, then you want to really emphasize the dollar or pound sign as well, as that quickly helps people realize how good of a deal it is. All of this got me wondering how charm pricing, that .99 pence or .99 cents pricing, how that comes into play. We've seen that pricing all over the place, but is it still a successful way to price a product? I would say back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, people were using nines, right? 99 to kind of take a penny off, but it seems like a full dollar less um, on, on the price. And that kind of snuck connotations of value in there. And then that connotation started to seem cheap, right? Because only the cheap products ended up doing that. And so 99 had that connotation, 95 started getting that connotation. And if you start seeing prices these days, um, the nines have really gone away. You have all sorts of wacky price, price endings. Um, Walmart is particularly um, notorious for doing that. So, so retail establishments where they don't have to worry about operational considerations really of making change um, or uh, producing a fast transaction necessarily the way that fast food joints have to. You see prices all over the place with weird endings. So they're not using the actual number as a signal of value or quality as much anymore as as much as they were decades ago. Sybil's right. This 99 pence pricing has really started to disappear. In fact, even the 99 flake, which in the UK is named after its 99 pence price, now costs £1.25. But research would suggest that this removal of charm pricing is a mistake. In fact, Shotton, who I referenced earlier, surveyed 650 consumers about their value perception of charm pricing using six different products. Half of these products had prices ending in 99p, while the other products saw prices just a penny or two higher. The charm prices that ended in 99 were 9% more likely to be seen as good value than the rounded prices. But the research doesn't just stop with hypothetical examples. In 2013, Gumroad, an e-commerce site, analysed all of the items on their site under $6, and specifically the items that had prices ending in $0.99 cents or a round dollar figure. They compared the conversion rates for these sets of products and found conclusively that the conversion rate for charm pricing was 3.5% compared to the conversion rate of just 2.3% of those priced just pennies more. That's a huge difference, a 51% difference. Anyway, so far we've seen that removing a dollar sign can improve sales by 6% and that adding a 9 or a 99 to your price can actually improve conversion. Now let's move away from just price and look at how products are presented, specifically on wine menus. Here's some of the research Sybil conducted. Most customers are relatively unsure about wine. And if you're talking about maybe, I don't know, a $50 average check per person at a restaurant and you're trying to sell a $60 bottle of wine, which is like more than what they're planning on, you know, uh, spending on their food. It's a high risk proposition. And that starts to make people a lot more conservative about their choice. So whatever you're going to do, you should really try to mitigate the risk or lower the perceived risk of purchasing that wine. And, Honestly, the easiest way to do that without, you know, full on paragraphs of descriptors of the wine is to just let them taste the wine or give them uh, tasting portions. Uh, more wine by the glass would probably be the easiest thing to increase wine sales. 
you know, something in even lower ticket um, example of that would be with beauty products these days. So um, we may think about like, you know, a $20 eye cream, but then there are also like $100 eye creams out there. It's a risk, right? You, you don't know what you're going to get um, inside that jar. And so places like Sephora, you, you take samples. There's an entire rise of a beauty subscription industry out there. Um, where sample size products are sent out to people. Hey, you try out our $100 eye cream for a couple of days, see, see if you like it. Um, and it really lowers the, the risk bar um, for consumers. I was going to also add on another risk reduction strategy that you can have for customers. And this is actually fairly interesting. Um, when people go to a restaurant and they buy food and they buy wine, it's not just necessarily the end product that they're buying they're not necessarily necessarily buying the liquid that's in the glass or the food that they're going to shove into their mouth but it's also the ego and the feeling that they have for looking you know high and mighty in front of their friends with all of their wine knowledge that the the wait staff treats them well it's an entire experience and if you can with your wine list make the make the guest look good make them feel good about the choice that they've made. Um, I think that does a lot too. So in that sense, a progressive wine list um, where things are easy to find, it's very easy to find like, you know, either the varietal that you want or the producer that you want um, and kind of the taste feel that you were looking for will really help. And specifically, I mean, on a progressive wine list, listing just even the wines from lightest body to fullest body or fruitiest to driest or something like that on, on the wine list. And if the server or the psalm gives the wine list to somebody and they can say, hey, this is progressive from, from light to full bodied, the customer can make a more informed decision and feel better about, about the choice that they've made. So high value products are obviously high risk because they're so expensive. But what Sybil is suggesting or saying is that you can reduce this risk by using a number of tactics. Sybil suggests um, allowing customers to taste the wine to reduce that risk, offering glasses rather than a full bottle, and importantly giving descriptions that actually help consumers see the value and justify their purchase and essentially reduce that risk as well. What I love about these tips is they can easily be transferred to other high-value products. For example, a Mercedes-Benz. They let people trial their product with test drives. They also offer pay-per-month options rather than just full-price payments. And they give descriptions that help a buyer understand its speed, its traction, its fuel efficiency, which all in all helps reduce that risk. Another thing to consider if you're doing something like a pay-per-month option to reduce the risk is how you present your time frame. Research um, conducted again by Richard Schotten discovered that the same price will seem more or less attractive based on the payback time frame you offer. So let's pretend that you're selling a high-value Mercedes-Benz. You could break down that cost annually to, say, £1,668, weekly to, say, £32 or £32 sorry, a week, or even daily to £4.57. 
which of these, though, would look more attractive to a consumer? Well, Schotten actually analysed this. He presented these sets of numbers to over 500 participants, and the results revealed conclusively that the shorter time frame was just daily £4.57. That short time frame was actually a much more appealing deal. When the prices are shown as a daily figure, these consumers were five times more likely to rate it as a great deal as when they were shown annually. That's despite the fact that they're essentially both the same price. This is a no-brainer for a salesperson. If you're selling software or tech or anything that's on a pay-per-month basis, you'd be stupid not to break down that price to a smaller time frame, either a weekly or a daily time frame. And that's because it will make you look cheaper than a competitor who might be setting even the exact same price. Anyway, let's go back to Sybil. Later on in the interview, I asked her about the best ways to organise a food menu. Here's what she said. We wanted to see what people were looking at and trying to match that up with the decisions that they, that they were making. Um, there's a, there's a, a train of thought in psychology um, of the theory of recency and primacy that we tend to remember the first things that we see and the last things that we see, which completely makes sense. Um, and the thought is if we're more likely to remember it, then we're more likely to choose it because, you know, you can't choose something that you don't remember. Um, and so we wanted to see if that was necessarily the case with, the, with restaurant menus. And if you think of a classic uh, two-page restaurant menu, you generally start with the, the starters or the appetizers in the upper left-hand corner, and then, you know, maybe progress down to, to salads or so on the bottom of the left, and then maybe the heavier entree stuff on the, on the right-hand side page, at least in Western societies. Um, and so if the theory was correct, people would tend to choose things that are in the upper left-hand corner more, and then perhaps on the bottom right-hand corner, um, more. And, um, what was interesting after we put eye trackers on people was that we saw that people read, read a menu like a book <laughs> from upper left-hand corner all the way down to the right-hand, um, bottom, but they scanned the menu to get a lay of the land like a book, um, and then they went straight for the entrees. So wherever the entrees uh, were on the, on the, on the two-page menu, they scanned to get a bearing of where everything was um, in, in a book progressive order. Um, and then their eyes went straight to the entrees, picked an entree, and then went back and composed the rest of their meal around the entree. Now, this probably seems like a, well, duh, that's what I do every day <laughs> um, type of thing. Oddly enough, it was... It was counterintuitive to what traditional expertise would say. Traditional expertise was, hey, you open up two pages and you look almost like almost dead center, kind of to the right. And then your eye patterns will move in kind of this butterfly pattern. And that was based off of how people were reading another kind of two-page, you know, uh, print piece, uh, which was a newspaper. Everything was based off of newspapers and magazines. So consumers remember the first and the last thing they see. Starting with your lowest priced entree probably isn't right. Instead, you should probably start with the one you want to sell the most, whether that's the biggest margin one or the highest rated, whatever it is, you shouldn't just order your menu by price. Most e-commerce sites do a really good job here, starting with the most popular items first. And that's probably because they've been able to do this test themselves and see what leads to the biggest net sales. But it's not done universally. In fact, Netflix, Spotify and Uber still list their prices from low to high on their site. And perhaps you do the same. So that's one to think about. 
It could probably be applied to other aspects of life as well. Let's say you're offering your child four choices of dinner, four dinner options. You're a very generous parent. This research would suggest that you put your preferred options first and last and chuck the ones that you don't want them to choose in the middle. So that's it from Sybil. But before she left, I asked her something I've been desperate to know since I read her work. What is her favourite menu? Here's what she said. (laughs) You know something? Um, this is going to seem weird, but, uh, I think Starbucks actually does a really good job. They've taken so much stuff off of their menu. Um, and it's all really just promotion. If you think about it, there really isn't much on the menu, um, that people end up ordering. And it's a lot about seasonality and selling the new, like everything's so seasonal there. And the stayed items on the menu they're always there and people are just going to order it without really looking at the menu. (laughs) And so I think they've turned their menu into just seasonal advertising, really, um, which I think is just absolutely brilliant. So next time you find yourself in a Starbucks, take a good look at their menu because one of the leading experts in menu design thinks that's the best one. Before we go, I wanted to talk about one more thing to do with payment and it's to do with payments on cards. And if you don't do payment via cards um, at your shop or your retail store, you might be missing out on quite a few sales. MIT professor looked at this. His name was Duncan Simester and he was trying to prove that it was better to sell via card. He auctioned a pair of basketball tickets to his students to try and prove this. Each student had to submit their maximum bid for the ticket in advance, but as always with these experiments there was a twist. Half had to pay by card and half had to pay by cash. The result? When paying by card the average bid was $61, when paying by cash the bid was only $29. You're far more likely to bid higher when paying by card. Apparently paying by card actually dulls the pain of payment. When you pay by cash it hurts to actually part with those hard-earned pounds or dollars but when you tap your card you're more carefree so long story short just offer a card machine that's it from me today huge thank you to Sybil Yang for joining me she has shared some really fascinating insights about how removing a dollar sign can increase sales by six percent about how menus should start and end with the items they want to sell the most and about how to reduce the risks behind buying high value products Anyway, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Nudge, the Consumer Psychology Podcast.